Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Uh, we're excited for the word that we have for you, and we're going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Two. And, and I'm going to start with uh, verses 1 through 13. And so that's what, that's what I'll read. And then we'll uh, take some time to unpack that together and, and, uh, and talk about it. Uh, so Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. This is the word of the Lord, verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. And followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy, set apart for the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her, who devoured Israel, were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you, the clans, clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? that they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? Where is he? Verse 7, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not even know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Verse 10, cross over to the coasts of Katim and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its God? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people, they have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What are you guys seeing as you guys read through these verses? There's quite a bit going on as we're reading through Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. What are you guys seeing? What is God saying? Um, I think for me personally, I picked up on him being like heartbroken. Like God Mm. is more heartbroken than angry, I feel like, at Israel. Um, Yeah. And I think it's important to like heartbroken because they make the connection that Israel is essentially his bride and his beloved. Yeah, he says that in, in, in verse two, right? I remember the devotion of your youth. There was a time where Israel, where Judah was faithful, where the bride loved God. They followed him through the desert. But now, now where are they? Right? Yeah, I find it interesting. Um, uh, throughout the passage from like five to nine, actually, he talks over about like, why didn't they ask where the Lord was? Mm. In fact, the Lord was always there, right? Yeah. He was always there. But 
the matter of the fact is, like, during their times of hardship, they never actually looked towards him. And I think yeah. that's what I actually really noticed here now, is that, like, even during their hardship, they didn't ask where the Lord is. They looked to other things. As yeah, th that's the difficulty, right? Is that, is that God even calls them out and says, why didn't you call out to me? Right? He says, you're wondering what, why, why you're going through these difficult things, but you, yet you haven't asked, where is the God who rescued us so tremendously from the land of Egypt? Says, where is that God? They didn't even, they didn't even bother to ask. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we do oftentimes. Right? Where, where we're going through a difficult time and the first thing we ask is, why hasn't God done this? Why is God doing this? Or, or why, oh, why me? We're, we're very like, self-centered in that sense where we're wondering, what, why are the things that are happening? Why, why, are, why are these things happening to us? Right? But we often don't ask, where is God in this? Or, or how have I strayed from God? That's not the first question we ask. Right? We ask, why is God doing this to me? As if God is against us. But, God, but I like what you brought up, that God has connected the nation uh, in an analogy, right? That, that God is the husband, and that Israel or Judah is the bride. And so I want to ask you guys, uh, think, about, think about what it would have looked like to be a bride in an ancient culture. Uh, today, it's a, it's a little different, right? There's, there's a lot of, of freedom to choose, but back then, uh, it was very different. It was often arranged, and, and the, the, the woman left the, the, the father's, the mother's household, and then was cleaved to, as Genesis says, was cleaved to the man they brought together. What do you think that, that means? Like, what would a husband have to do for his bride in that context? Um. Well, we kind of talked about it last night when we were discussing this, that the husband was meant to protect the bride, to um, provide for her in any way possible kind of idea. Yeah, kind of like full responsibility um, for the bride. And it's a great thing if they're loving because that's a really good place to be as a bride. And, you know, you constantly feel cared for, you feel loved all the time. Yeah, you, you, you feel, and then that's a, that's a big thing, because think about the fact that they're in a desert, right? So for them to be in a land without natural ability to produce fruit, you need someone to care for you. And that's what God says specifically, right? He says, you followed me in verse 2, you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. This is a land that is arid, a land that doesn't naturally provide or, or have good sustenance. But he says, but I, the husband, have provided. I, the husband, have given. Right. Are there any similarities to this analogy of the bride and the husband to like the shepherd and the sheep? Or is that like, it's kind of the same idea, but is there like a difference? Yeah. What, which, which one are you referring to? Like just the general analogy? Or just like, a general analogy, okay. but just like specifically like how would the shepherd and the sheep differ from like this? Yeah. It's a similar idea, right? Where the shepherd and the husband are both carers and protectors for the flock, for the bride. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in, especially in this ancient system, uh, the sheep were vulnerable. The women were vulnerable. If a woman was divorced and if she didn't have a family to go back to, she was often left without anything. And God had given specific laws about this thing called gleaning, uh, where if there was a harvest area, you weren't allowed to pick the fruit that fell naturally. You had to leave that for the widows because God cared for these widows who had no one else to provide for them. And so he cared for them in that way. But, but this is so important because without the husband here, especially in this time, the woman was left incredibly vulnerable, right? Incredibly vulnerable. Same with, mm -hmm. the, same with the sheep. 
The mm. sheep were left incredibly vulnerable without a, a shepherd to protect them. And we have that story of David, right? Yeah, Where yeah. David fights off the lion and the bear and saves, saves his sheep. But the sheep sometimes wander. Mm. And, and, mm. and the bride here, we, we read it, it, she kind of wanders as well. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, she has switched her gods. And, and, and God brings all of these charges Right? And, and we might want to read them as very negatively charged or very angry, but, but you, you mentioned it's not about anger. It's heartbrokenness. God is this husband who has just had his heart torn apart because the bride of his youth, youth the bride that, that loved him and that he loved so much, has now left and has changed and has committed two sins. It says they have forsaken God, who is the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, we're on the topic of charges. Um, I, I get the idea that this is all under the law and everything, but is the charges like him putting punishment on them? Or is this like coincidentally going to happen because of their actions, like actions bring consequences? Like, is this him fully like saying like, oh yeah, I'm going to punish you for this. Like, here's everything that you ever done. I'm going to punish you. Or is it more like you disobey the law and with that comes consequences, and I can't protect you from it because it's the consequences yeah. that came from it. Yeah, it's the consequences, right? So again, think about the analogy of a bride mm -hmm. being brought into the household and then being cared for. If she leaves the household, what happens to the, to the caring and the protection? Mm, it's gone. She's no longer okay. in the household, okay. right? And, so, and then there, there's a reason why God brings charges. It's not that God suddenly saw the, the bride off and says, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead right away and divorce her, right? Because the bride actually asks. They, they're, they're wondering. They're blaming God. They're not asking where God is, but rather they're blaming God, and we'll see that in a bit as well. They're blaming God for all the things that happen, and so God's defending himself by bringing the charges and saying, well, actually, this is the reality, Right? Mm -hmm. You have left. Mm -hmm. You have gone. And so you're experiencing what it's like to be in a desert without protection. And that's why he says, you have left the spring of living water and have dug your own cisterns. A cistern was a, not, not a well, but a giant cavern where, the, where they would hold water. And so they would plaster it with, with this limestone that was water uh, repellent uh, so, th so that it kind of wouldn't seep through into the rocks, right? It would hold the water. Uh, and so God says, you have dug your own cisterns, but they're cisterns that are broken. They cannot hold water. And think about what it's like to be in a desert without water, right? You die. And so that's what God is saying. God is saying, you have dug your own cisterns and it cannot hold water. These are the charges that I'm bringing against you. All right, so let's, let's continue reading uh, verses 20 to 25. Uh, okay, so verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into, into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder and the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not run after the bales? See how you behaved in the valley? Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? 
Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. Quite an analogy that we're reading here. What, what, what do you guys see? Because this is, this is pretty shocking, right? Especially when you're reading it. I mean, what? She camels, donkeys? Sniffing the winds and cravings. <laughs> it's strange, right? But what do, you, what do you guys, like what's your first reaction to this? How do you feel as you hear what is being said? For me, it seems very, um, how would it, harsh in mm. a way. It's very like, what's that word? I forgot what the word is, but like, it seems like very like upfront and like it's telling the straight truths and facts, but it's very harsh. Um, I mean, if I were to hear, maybe? yeah, confrontational. Yeah, okay. yeah. If I were to hear those words, man, ooh, and I didn't rethink my ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's it's pretty um, interesting. Just because at the beginning we're talking about a heartbroken God and almost wondering, not maybe why, because you kind of know through the things that Israel has been through and done. Um, but then when you come to verses twenty to twenty-five, um, it's I don't know what I was going to say. Oh, it makes it more like harsh, like you were saying, because you're a prostitute. You're going here and there and everywhere. And I just think it's much more um, confrontational and harsh and to really put it into perspective of like just how terrible it was. Israel was yeah. Being, yeah. yeah. I think like God's really just kind of calling it as it is, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think because he's so hurt that Israel's like left him, he's basically saying like you're prostituting yourself to all these other gods and it, it's yeah, he's so honest in verses 20 to 25 like <laughs> they have done these things and I think he's really just calling Israel out and showing yeah. them the truth of everything. Yeah, think about for a second, because there's a personification here. Personification is when you take an entity or an object or, or a grouping and you, you kind of talk about them as if they were one individual, right? And so the personification is that God is the husband, Israel and Judah are the bride. Think about what has Israel as a bride been through in her lifetime, right? What, what, if you were to summarize Israel's life as a woman, what has she been through in the past, I don't know, a couple centuries? Trauma? Destruction. Yeah. Uh, Slavery. Slavery, right, in Egypt. So you think about how this bride has come from nothing, from literally nothing, has been through the ringer, has, has, has been enslaved by Egypt for 400 years, and then God swoops in and delivers them, brings them out of slavery into their own land, into their own inheritance, and this is kind of how they repay God. This is how they respond to God. Right? And God is, God, again, God is so heartbroken. He says, because he says that in the first reading that we did, he says, what have I done? Right? He, says, he says, is there something that I didn't provide for you that you have chosen all these other things? And, and the wording is, it really is harsh, but it's a reality. God is just telling the way it is. And there's a reason why the language is so, so very harsh, because it's meant to highlight the severity of our sin. It's not just that Israel has left and has gone off with another lover, that'd be one thing, right? It's that Israel has gone off and laid with every lover possible, 
And that's why Jeremiah describes it as, as a she-camel or as a donkey uh, following, following the, 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 the cravings of the wind, following her lust, just anything that comes in, in, in place. And, and so if you know, um, they're like animals, often when they're, when they're in heat, when they're ready for mating, they lay off pheromones. And then animals come like males specifically come from very far. I was watching a documentary once on polar bears. And, uh, and polar bears are solitary creatures. They don't actually run in packs. And so for, for, they often don't see each other for like months at a time. And so when a, when a female polar bear is ready, right, she, lay off, she lays off the pheromones and the males come. And now we were in the documentary, they were tracking one single male who had followed six miles, six whole miles to find this singular female polar bear, right? But then, but then the contrast here is saying any males that pursue Israel need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. She's readily available to follow all these other things. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use, Israel says. I just love the foreign gods, and I must go after them. It is this very, like, just degraded lust that Israel has for all these foreign gods. But what's so, what's so crazy, uh, I'm thinking about this, verse 11, says, but my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. God says, I have set you as a queen in this land of inheritance, but you've squandered it by chasing after all these other things, powerless idols that can't do anything. Right. Uh, let's keep reading verses 26 to 29. Sure, verse 26. Israel is like a thief who feels shame only when he gets caught. They, their kings, officials, priests, and prophets are all alike in this. To an image carved from a piece of wood, they say, you are my father. To an idol chiseled from a block of stone, they say, you are my mother. They turn their backs on me, but in times of trouble, they cry out to me, come and save us. But why not call on these gods you have made? When trouble comes, let them save you if they can. For as you have as many gods as there are at towns in Judah, why do you accuse me of doing wrong? You are the ones who have rebelled, says the Lord. Yeah, this whole, this whole thing is, is really meant to be almost like a courtroom battle between Israel the bride and God the husband. And, and he says this, right? He says, you have claimed the inheritance of all these other fake and worthless idols. And, but, but when trouble comes, you say, please come save me. You say, please come save me. And then God says, well, why don't you ask the other gods? If they're offering something, if they're giving you something, why not ask them, right? For you have as many gods as you have towns. Uh, where are the gods that, that you have made for yourself? And then God says, but why do you bring charges against me? What right do you have to, to, to levy these charges of where are you when you're the one who's gone after all these other things and have abandoned the, the protection, the blessing of being in the household? Do you think that everybody's one and the same throughout the Israelites? Like, as in like, um, I know that like they've worshiped other gods and stuff, but what, was it in them to do it themselves, or were they just following people? Because I know they're like sheep, you know, like, we've used that analogy many times, but are the Israel, Israelites in that way sheep as well? Like, do they follow because one person chooses to follow all these gods, or do them, they themselves devote themselves to these gods? You know what yeah, saying? that's a good question. Um, let's read, where is it here? Uh, verse 26 says, as a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, the house, their kings, 
their officials, their priests, their prophets, they speak to these idols. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the, it, it, God is saying it's not just like the individual people. Because yes, for sure there were, there were certainly people that were faithful to God. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as best as they could have been. But God says the whole reason that this is happening is because everything from the top down is corrupt. Your kings, your priests, your officials, your leaders, your prophets, all of them are corrupt. From the very head to their toes, they're leading others in that system of rebellion. And so a lot of people perhaps maybe did not inherently choose to to abandon God, but rather followed the leadership of the time, reasoning to themselves that that was acceptable to God. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Does that kind of answer? Yeah, it it does answer my question. It just kind of, it just makes me think of more questions where it's like, you know, like those leaders, like, Man, I just lost the question. <laughs> is this like a common thing for them to do? Like if a new leadership were to be put into place, like would they do the same thing kind of thing? Like was this a habit that we know of? Yeah, 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 for sure. Of? For sure it was. And, and the kings, you read it. If you read the book of, of Second Kings, if you read the book of Chronicles, you read that constantly throughout time and time again, the kings are, are following these other gods. But, but here's, the, here's the thing, because this is important to note, is that it's not that one day they switched and suddenly said, well, let me stop worshiping Yahweh and go switch Baal. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they actually, what they did was they brought in s- small practices first. And they would, do, uh, they would accept these other things and accept these other things. And eventually it got so, they accepted so many things that now they weren't even worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping all these other things. They still had the temple. They still had the sacrifices, but they were doing everything so completely wrong and degraded that now it looked like an entirely different God. Right? And what's interesting for us, especially for us, is that this often happens. It's not that you just suddenly go from, from worshiping God to like, well, no, I don't want to worship God at all. It's that we begin to accept these little things, these little degradations of worship, and it all roots itself from being not connected to God. That's where it takes root, mm-hmm. missing that connection with God. Yeah, something that stood out to me, the second part of verse 27 says, they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet, when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. So they're following all these idols, but yet when they're in trouble, they don't turn to their given God or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. who do they turn to? Mm-hmm. They turn back to Yahweh. Yahweh. And they're like, Yahweh, save us. But God's like, well, I mean, you follow these other gods. So is it that you recognize that there's no power in them? that you're asking me? And if you do recognize, then why do you continue to follow them? Mm-hmm. Right? I think it like is really powerful when you put it in the perspective of like the analogy of the bride and the husband, because that would be so painful for God to you know, care for his wife so much and then have her leave and prostitute herself. And then only when she's in trouble, come back to him. Yeah. Right? Like that is, yeah, yeah that's, the audacity to do that is exactly right. Strong. Like if you were married to someone and they only ever came home for supper time was and and it's not like you're know, like oh dinner's ready. Like they came home, sat down, and was like yo, where's the food? You know what I mean? Like if your spouse only ever did that, like that's not a marriage. You wouldn't enjoy that marriage. You'd be like, why did we ever get married if all you want from me is just food and demand where the food is? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, and, the, and the heartbreaking part is that, that we are Israel and we haven't realized that we've done it because even they say it, right? Verse 23, God says, how can you say that you are not defiled and have run after the other bells? 
and the other balls, right? Like, they're like, how can, you, how can you claim that you haven't done this? You have. They don't even realize that they're worshiping these false gods and false idols. Yet they're doing all these other things like child sacrifices, like temple prostitution, all these crazy things that you would think logically, well, that doesn't make sense. But these slow things that they began to accept began to rationalize the degradation of worship in their minds. And God says, well, how can you say you haven't done this? Right? It's all rooted in, in the lack of connection with God. When we haven't connected with God, that's how, we're, that's how we, we kind of get into this place where we can accept all these false things and be in a place where, where now we're not even worshiping Jesus, worshiping the idea of Jesus, but we're not even worshiping him, right? When we put our own ideology, when we put our own politics, when we put our own stances above what the Bible actually says, above what God actually wants, then we're worshiping an idol of Jesus and not the real Jesus, right? Which is, which is crazy to think about sometimes. Let's read verses 1, one through 5 here. Natana, I'll read that. Chapter right. 3. Chapter Jeremiah three, verse chapter five. 3, verses 1 to 5. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? Look up to the barren heights and see. Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have brazen look you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend, from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk but you do all the evil you can. Yeah. What are you guys, what are you guys reading as you, what do you guys hear, see as you read this? For me, it's, it, it, it's not that it's relatable at all, but like, I mean, the concept, the idea of that, like, you know, and in the last few verses here, it says, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? And, you know, we always ask, it's easy to always ask for forgiveness and stuff and to, like, believe in something. But I think the problem is that, like, um, we may believe it, but sometimes we don't act it. Yeah, like, it's, yeah, easier yeah, to yeah, have, yeah. it's easier to speak the words than it is ever to do them. And, I mean, I find that for myself, too, where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm doing schoolwork. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. But I find myself doing other things. It's so easy. Yeah. And it almost seems like it's human nature, and it, it, it sucks. It really yeah. does suck. Yeah, because repentance without steps towards actual change mm -hmm. is just empty words, mm -hmm. right? It's like that saying where it's like people always ask, like, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to, um, what was that? Easier <laughs> to ask a... forgiveness than permission. Yeah, than permission, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of not related here, but I'm just saying, like, in a general way, it's like, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness, and but, like, you know, do we truly mean it? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and actually that... that that connects really well because the idea is that it's easier to simply ask for forgiveness than to, it is to ask permission for something that, that might not be okay. Mm -hmm. And so we almost water down or devalue what forgiveness actually is or what repentance actually is. And that's what God says. He says, he says this is how you talk. You, you claim that I am angry. You claim that, 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 that my wrath is against you. And you ask these questions. God, when will you stop being angry at me? He says, but but you do all the evil that you can. Yeah, I think another point that stood out to me was that um, like the Israelites were completely shameless, as God points yeah. out in verse 
three. Um, yeah, it's just like, if you're asking for forgiveness for something, it totally devalues it if you're not even sorry. Yeah, and the words, he says, you refuse to blush with shame. It's not, it's, it goes beyond too. It's not even just that like, oh, we're not really caring about it. It's like, no, I refuse to care about the fact that I have done these things. But then when the trouble comes, God, why are you angry? God, when, when will you stop? And God's like, but how can you ask these things when you're just shamelessly going about all this other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what, what's really important here is, and I wanted to touch on this, is verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 3. says, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, would he return to her? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord. God is saying, like, if you have cheated and have left and have bound yourself to another, the land would be defiled if you were to return to me. I cannot take you back. He says, that's, that's what the legal discourse is. Right? But we're going to read something that's so interesting because it goes contrary to the legal discourse. Mm-hmm. And it goes in favor of love. I find it also interesting that, like, you know, he even just says just another man. He doesn't, like, say, like, numerous amounts or any sort of amount. Just one is enough that, like, it's defiled enough. Exactly. But, like, all of a sudden, here you are, like, having more than, more than one. It's like, what are you doing? Yes. <laughs> you think we're going to come back to you after all that? Yes. You know? It'd be disgraceful enough if it was just one. Mm-hmm. But here you are with everyone. Right? Yeah. It's really meant to to highlight, to show how contrasted Israel's or Judah's unfaithfulness is compared to what's going to happen here. And this is kind of where we want to go to, where we want to end off on. Uh, We're reading verses 12 through 18, but I want to summarize something real quick, uh, just the verses between that, because I think it's important that God calls calls out Israel and Judah. Because Israel, remember that they're divided into two nations. Israel is to the north, Judah is to the south. And so Judah, for the most part, in Kings, in the book of Kings, for the most part, Judah is painted as a faithful nation. Simply because they still have the temple, the tabernacle, and the whole, the Holy of Holies, and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, they still have that. While Israel has erected their own temples, they have set their own line of priests that aren't Levites. In fact, Israel has actually built the golden calves that, the, that Moses had destroyed back in Exodus, right? And so Israel is, is, the northern kingdom is completely faithless. They have abandoned God completely. There's no pretenses at all. They're just worshiping a golden calf, right? Whereas Judah, is, they still have the temple. They still have the, the Ark of the Covenant. They still have all these beautiful things that are part of the covenant. So God says, Israel is faithless. He says, I have divorced her. I have left her. Because of what she has chosen to do, she has left, right? And then uh, verse 11, uh, we don't have it on the screen, but I actually just want to read that. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel is still more righteous than unfaithful Judah. There's a contrast because the Judeans would have been so proud. We're not like Israel. We haven't set up a golden calf. We haven't set up our own temple and our own priests. But God says, well, actually, you're worse off than the people you compare yourself to and boast about. You're worse off than they. Verse 12 says, but go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful. What does is, what is your version say? I think, I, I think we liked the, the reading there. Uh, yeah, it says, Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown, frown on you no longer, for I am faithful. 
declares yeah. the Lord. Faithful. I will not be angry forever. Just, just acknowledge your guilt, verse 13 says. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join the house of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your forefathers as an inheritance. Then verse 22 says, Return, faithless people, and I will cure you of your backsliding. Now God is, is alluding to something future, far off. He says, When you have returned... I will restore you to the land of your inheritance. I'll restore you to the blessing as if you've never even left. And then he says, so I will give you shepherds and leaders. I will give you, they won't, they won't be of your own uh, strength. The, the faithfulness won't come from you. I will provide that. And then he says, because then he says, yeah, he says, in those days, they won't even miss the ark. Of the, of the Lord, right? The ark was the place where the Shekinah glory, God's presence would descend. And so it was the symbol of God's presence in the town. But he says, you won't need that small ark. In fact, the whole city will be where my presence lives. That's how, that's how in love I am with you, that I just want to bless the entire city, the entire populace, the entire nation with my presence. They will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord and no longer will you follow after the stubbornness of your hearts. But he says, return Judah, return Israel, I will take you back. And it's so interesting in contrast to chapter three, verse one. Where he's, or, no, chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, if, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him for another man and he returns to her, would not the land be defiled? But God says, but I'm willing to take that shame. I am willing to take on that scorn. I am willing to break that legal protocol and take you back because I am, and I love what your version said, I am faithful. I am your husband. I have chosen you and rescued you. How do you guys feel as you read kind of what it concludes with, what it's bringing, uh, what it's drawing to? Um, I really liked what you touched on too. Like uh, for the old laws, um, when a man divorces a woman and she goes and marries someone else, he will not take her back again. Um, I think it'd be almost disgraceful to take your wife back once you know she goes and prostitutes herself. But as you said, God is so in love with her that He's willing to take her back despite all this and despite what other people may think. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and we saw that last week with uh, Don Straub's reading of Hosea, right? We actually see it lived out through the life of Hosea that, that Hosea's wife goes and she does prostitute herself among other many lovers and, and Hosea still takes her back. And this is literally what God is doing too, right? God says, I'm willing to take that shame and take you back all because I desperately love you and have chosen you, right? Yeah, any other comments, you guys, as we kind of close up here? I like how it's always like a message of 
of wow of uplifting kind of mm-hmm. you know it's not it's not to it's it's a bit downgrading but he's not trying to make it seem that way he's just saying like there is hope at the end like you know like you've done all this you've done all that like and like the laws say i should like not be i shouldn't like come back to you i should be putting these charges against you but i'm willing to just you know forget about it and like i think that's I think that's the forgiveness part that the Israelites are forgetting, you know, like they're like, oh, he's willing to just scrap everything and start back fresh. But, you know, mm-hmm. um, again, you said this, we, we have like a very self-centered view where it's like, oh, man, like, oh, where am I going to this? <laughs> no, yeah, we have a self-centered view where it's like, why God have you done this? And we blame mm-hmm. God mm-hmm. for all mm-hmm. these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so true, right, that it doesn't make sense that God would do this. It doesn't. Because when you highlight all the things, because again, God is not angrily accusing and throwing out these, the, these slanderous words that aren't entirely true. It's not that God is angry and just making stuff up. No, God is literally just reciting facts before the courtroom. And he's saying, this is all the things that you have done. And it's not right legally for me to take you back. It doesn't make sense. But I will. Mm-hmm. Because I love you. And I have chosen you. I also like how like simple God makes it for his people to come back to him. Despite everything they've done, it's, they just have to acknowledge their guilt yes. and admit that they rebelled. Yes. But I think sometimes that's the hardest part because it's so hard to even forgive yourself, let alone think that this person who you have a relationship with can forget all these terrible things that you've done to them personally. Yeah, that, that it is. It's truly hard, right? And I think that... I think that most, many of us would probably disagree with, with the connection between the severity of the prostitution in our own lives. We'd be like, well, I'm not that bad, right? I'm not that bad. But I think the, the case that God makes is that it doesn't matter how bad you are. Look how bad Israel has been, and I'm willing to take her back. And so if you still feel like you aren't that bad, if you feel like you're just as bad, if you feel like perhaps you're even worse, God says, I'm still willing to take you back. All you need to do is come back and admit the guilt, right? Come in repentance. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't say, well, come back and never cheat on me again. And if you ever do this, no, God says, come back. I will send you leaders that will guide your heart. Come back to me. I will change you so that you will follow my ways better. It's not our own strength that keeps us in faithfulness. It's God's strength that keeps us in faithfulness. But if we leave, how can we have the strength to be faithful in the first place? Right? Yeah, I I love this chapter, what Jeremiah does. And I think the contrast makes it so much more real for us when we see how harsh the words are and the reality that kind of holds the mirror up to us and forces us to realize, you know what, that's us. But God says, but I still love you. I'm still willing to pursue you. I'm still willing to put everything aside just to have you because I have chosen you. And so what I really wanted to to bring it home with, where I really wanted to highlight this, is that reality. That it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you feel you have strayed. God says this, return to me. Acknowledge your guilt and I will work in your heart to make you faithful. I will work in your heart to follow me. And no longer will you follow the stubbornness of your evil hearts, but rather in those days you will be, will be brought together and you will receive the inheritance, the blessing that is being in the presence of God. 
So I love, I love that. And, and I want to thank you guys for, for joining me uh, this week. Uh, hopefully we'll do it again in the future. I know you guys are. But anyways, um, yeah, it was, it was great. Thanks so much, guys, for listening. I just want to pray with you guys, and then uh, we'll have one final song after, after the prayer and after uh, one announcement. So let's just pray. God, we are so incredibly grateful that you are such an amazing and loving God. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't forsaken us. You constantly pursue us in goodness and in love. You chase after us. And even when we turn our backs on you and blame you for all the consequences of our choices, you are still willing to take us back. God, we have been faithless. God, we have been unfaithful. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to return to you in repentance and forgiveness, acknowledging that we have done wrong, knowing that there is freedom and forgiveness in you. Help us to love you, knowing that our faithfulness is not in our own strength, but rather our faithfulness comes from being connected to you. God, I just pray that you would help us to realize how much you love us. Help us to come back to you, God. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.